This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks very much, Caleb. Glad to be here. First, I'd like to ask if you could just tell us a little bit about your background. Well, um, I've been president of Wesleyan University since 2007. And um, I went to Wesleyan as a college student in the mid-70s, from 75 to 78. Uh, I grew up on Long Island, and uh, my... uh, uh, parents uh, sent me off to college. They hadn't been to college themselves, but they thought uh, the thing that they should be able to do for their kids was to give them the chance to go to college. And I've been in colleges more or less since uh, <laughs> since then. Um, I started off wanting to be a writer and uh, at Wesleyan discovered that I also loved study and uh, my fields of study at the time were really the intersection of psychology, philosophy, and history. And Wesleyan was a kind of paradise for such things because you could uh, you could make up your own major, you could take what you wanted. And I did that and graduated early, went off to get a PhD in history at Princeton. Wasn't sure I really wanted to do history, but I had a remarkable group of teachers there as I did at Wesleyan. And they were very encouraging to do what you want. And uh, I did a dissertation in the history of philosophy, um, uh, of philosophers who were followers of the Hegel, who, but they lived in France in the uh, first part of the 20th century. And I was interested basically in the, the teachers of the people who became famous as deconstruct, deconstructionists or postmodernists. I, I studied the previous generation who were very deeply invested in history uh, and not in uh, deconstruction or anti-historical postmodernism. So I lived in France for a few years, and uh, which was pretty wonderful. I had never really been out of the country before I uh, got to go there and um, had uh, the good fortune to get a, a job in 82-83 to start teaching at Scripps College in Claremont, California, which I did for about 12 years. And uh, at some point while I was there, I was invited to the Getty Center to spend a year to work on a project that I had been developing on memory disorders and how they were conceptualized by doctors and philosophers. And uh, I wound up liking the Getty so much that I prevailed upon them a year or so later to invite me back to run the program. 
And I did that for five years before becoming president of California College of Arts and Crafts, and now the California College of Arts in San Francisco and Oakland. And after spending uh, seven years uh, as president of CCA, um, Wesleyan contacted me quite shockingly from my perspective <laughs> and asked if I'd be interested in being president of Wesleyan and would they could talk with me. And I thought there was absolutely no danger that they would ask me to be president because I wasn't that kind of guy. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, here I am 15 years later, still president of Wesleyan and still writing books somewhere with history and philosophy and psychology and politics. So in this uh, newest book, it, it came out a few years ago, but the, uh, the, dish, the edition I have here comes with a, uh, a new preface. And it, you know, the subtitle of your book is A Pragmatist's Approach to Inclusion, Free Speech, and Political Correctness on College Campus. And in that preface, you talk about Richard Rorty in particular. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about why you titled it a pragmatist approach and the influence that certain pragmatists, thinkers, and philosophers had on your thinking on these issues? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, I, I had the, the uh, great good fortune of, of, uh, of being a student of Dick Rorty's when I was at Princeton, and he was unhappily in the philosophy department, and I was unhappily in the history department, and... Uh, he was just a fantastic teacher. He was just a remarkably gifted teacher, very, very funny, never smiled himself, but he was uh, he just, he made things clear, humorous, uh, relevant, and um, he was a deflationary uh, thinker. He, he kind of took things that were puffed up and <laughs> he, he made them, um, shrank them down. Uh, and, and I did my, as I mentioned, I did my dissertation on French Hegelianism and, uh, he was on the committee and to my great surprise, really shock, um, uh, Dick, uh, when I asked him for about the exam, he said, there's only one person who could really read this dissertation with authority. And that's Victor Gurevich of Wesleyan, who was my philosophy teacher at Wesleyan. And I, I, I had some sense they knew each other, but I didn't realize they were actually very dear friends. And, and, and Victor Gravich, who became a dear friend of mine, um, was a, a student of Leo Strauss. And so he and Rorty didn't see eye to eye on many things, <laughs> but they were great friends. And to me, they modeled a kind of intellectual friendship. And, you know, what I take away from um, my study of the pragmatists with, with, with Rorty, and, but also reading Emerson and Thoreau with Stanley Cavell, um, uh, was a, uh, a commitment to trying to find solutions to particular problems in particular places that would not be dependent on overarching principles. And... Uh, but that would be still defensible uh, in conversation or debate. Um, and so um, the, my previous book, which was called Beyond the University, uh, Why Liberal Education Matters, uh, also is a pragmatist approach to liberal learning. Where so uh, 
you know, I have a lot of colleagues who say, oh, we, we love liberal arts education too, because it's all about the search for truth. And I have to say, you know, um, well, no, it's, I, I don't think truth enters into it at all. It's just really like the search for trying to do a little bit better mucking along or, and, and, um, and so they don't like that. The, the, um, the more um, conservative or even the radical liberal learning people, they do believe in truth with a capital T sometimes. And um, so believing in inquiry and conversation rather than truth and um, conclusions, I think I, that's something that uh, Dick Verdi had a, a profound influence on me about. Yeah, I was I was pleased to see in particular that you referenced uh, Rorty's book, Contingency, Irony, Solidarity. I actually remember reading that as a junior at Wesleyan and that being like one of the most like exciting moments that a person I think can have reading uh, some reading something like that. Um, but yeah, was that with Joe Rouse? Um, no, this was actually uh, independent. This was independently. And then I. Um, was doing a, 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 I was doing a, I don't know even how to describe it, honestly. I was doing like a, a tutorial on Don Quixote with uh, Michael Armstrong Roche. And uh, for each section of Don Quixote, we would read someone like Stanley Cavell or Judith Sklar or Cora Diamond uh, and try and then do a little, um, try and do a, uh, a kind of a writing assignment that was modeled off of uh, off of their style or approach, and Richard Rorty, we, uh, you know, my, Michael Armstrong Roche, uh, Roche was not as enthusiastic about Richard Rorty as I was, but uh, I, I loved reading Contingency, Irony, Solidarity. Um, yeah, I review. I just reviewed his is um, a, a posthumous collection of lectures I, I reviewed for the Los Angeles Review of Books. Um, yeah, he's he was a remarkably good writer and and very funny. I my class we end this semester with postmodern bourgeois liberalism, um, so uh, uh, which annoys everyone. <laughs> no, he he really is a one of the clearest writers. That's what I that's what I loved so much about him is that his his just ability to take. I think your description of him as deflationary writer is great because he really does take things that seem get so puffed up and he brings them down. <laughs> down a notch and not in a in a mean way in a in a very uh you know in a thoughtful way a very thoughtful way um but you know to 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 stick on on the book as much as i would love to talk about richard Rorty for the next seven hours um you begin i you know i would say that this is sort of a this book is a is a collection of three essays that all cover themes that are you know very hot button issues very controversial today uh, in academia. And your first discussion is about the legacy of affirmative action and this notion, uh, these two different notions of affirmative action or of um, how we might consider opening up the academy of between access and inclusion. So what is the access approach and what is the uh, inclusion approach to education as you see it? So in in that first section, I, I I'm interested in the way in which uh, talk about affirmative action has been really replaced as much as one can do it with talk about inclusion. And so even a decade ago, I hired the first vice president of of 
um, diversity, I think we call it at the time. Um, and now that position has been defined as equity and inclusion. The diversity piece was about access, was about making sure that a highly selective school wasn't just filled with rich white kids and um, ha had certain criteria for, for enabling the opening of access to uh, a broader uh, populations and, and specifically populations that had been marginalized in the past. The problem for affirmative action defenders is it's just really hard to say why, why Jane got in and John didn't. I mean, um, it's probably because um, uh, uh, you know, Jane may be from a better zip code or you, know, you, you need more women or, um, or you, there is really no good reason because they're, so, they're both capable of getting an A- minus at the university that there's, there's hard, it's very hard to say why one gets in rather than the other. And so when debates about affirmative action get underway and, and, and a aggrieved person says, you know, more people like me should be getting in. I mean, it's probably true. More people like you should be getting in, but there's just not room for everyone. So some people aren't going to get in. And so we're going to balance it out um, around certain identity markers. And it's just not very satisfying uh, uh, as a general policy because it violates sense of individual meritocracy. Um, and and it, you wind up using race as a proxy for other things, let's say uh, um, previous lack of opportunity. Um, and so much easier to say, whoever gets in should really feel included. Nobody disagrees with that. <laughs> if we say, well, Caleb, you got in, but Roth didn't get in. Are you really better than Roth? It's how do you, what, it, there's no winning that argument. But if I say, I want uh, Caleb and, and Michael to both feel included, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, um, so there's a shift over time to, um, to, to talking about making sure everybody has a great experience while they're on campus, um, however they got in. Because you know people get in for all kinds of reasons. Some of them are defensible, and some of the times they're not defensible reasons. So uh, the, one of the issues that arises here is that if you don't work on access, though, if you don't have something like affirmative action, um, in many places of the country, you will get a very racially homogeneous population. And, and that's um, bad for the education of everyone. The, the problem with inclusion is that uh, it can degenerate into something like the customer is always right mentality. So that it's, just, it's harder to feel included when somebody tells you you're, you're wrong about something. I mean, uh, I think the example I use in the book is if you're in an evolutionary biology class and you say, well, I believe that the book of Genesis holds the essential truth about the creation of the universe, that professor is probably going to tell you you're, you're, you're not, your view is not welcome in class. Um, and however nicely they say it or not nicely they say it, that you, you get the message. And it's just harder to feel included in that way. And so what interested me in the chapter is really just showing this shift from debates about access to debates how, about how to make people more feel more, more included. And, you know, I think, it's, I think schools are still wrestling with this, like schools that were historically white institutions that have become much more diverse. Uh, 
sometimes they became diverse and said, you know, we would like everybody to feel they too can play lacrosse. I don't know. <laughs> like most, most people don't want to play lacrosse. That, that's not the way they feel included. Um, but, but, uh, so they have to find other non-traditional ways of fostering inclusion while at the same time maintaining something like something that's, I, something that's close to their, um, historic identity. In other words, they are still, they want to have continuity with their history, but since their history was based on excluding certain groups, they don't want to have total continuity with their history. So that just, that just leads to um, certain challenges about um, balancing critical thinking and inclusion, historical identity and, and, and inclusion. Uh, I use some, some examples in, in the book uh, about uh, high need students who um, see themselves like a, as an identity group you know, let's say low-income students seeing themselves as an identity group, uh, which is an interesting phenomenon because um, they probably don't want to remain low-income people for the rest of their lives. Um, and, 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 or if they're first-generation students, they, they, their, their children won't be <laughs> by definition. And, and that is different from, you know, the Christian fellowship or the uh, Malcolm X house or the, um, uh, or some of the other identity-based or religious practices-based groups. So I think that um, there's just a lot of pressure on how you can have community and inclusion while also fostering a sense of uh, spirited debate, critical thinking, and social mobility. Just to, uh, to move into the second essay, um, where you talk about free speech and political correctness. I think you do a, a really interesting job of historicizing the political correctness debates. And I also think that, you know, the reason why I want to just move into talking about these, because I think that they, they'll also provide um, just a bit more color too for the first chapter, uh, because these three essays really do uh, intertwine with each other. Uh, so what is the kind of general history of the political correctness debates and what do you see as the relationship between political correctness and free speech? So uh, I spent some time showing the highlights in the history of this phrase political correctness, which initially was used among leftists to um, uh, criticize people who were, weren't towing the theoretical line and then became an, kind of ironically used among leftists to say, you know, you Trotskyite aren't being politically correct, ha ha. Uh, and then um, into the late 60s and early 70s, um, when the new left said, you know, the problem with this old left is that it it's too doctrinaire. And by doctrinaire, they meant the old left was trying too hard to be politically correct rather than exuberantly radical and and uh, revolutionary without um, doctrine. Uh, Moira uh, Weigel uh, has, has uh, I guess, been working maybe on a book about this for some time and has written uh, some about this history. And 
Uh, I mean, I found it, I thought an interesting case of Tony uh, Kambabara uh, and, and another uh, feminist, uh, maybe was it Audrey Lord, um, uh, who, who get into a debate about, you know, who's doctrinaire, who's politically correct, uh, who's a politically correct sister. And, um, and I, I thought that, you know, there, and there's a poem uh, in which one talks to the other, about, don't try to be correct, you know, try to be free these kinds of debates, and these happened throughout the 1970s. But um, in the 1980s, there becomes another critique of college campuses that becomes, the, I think, the foundation for the contemporary use of political correctness and then woke culture. And that's Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind, which is in a kind of mid-80s uh, book, you know, surprise bestseller, um, and becomes a template for many authors <laughs> trying to make money uh, selling uh, politically charged books uh, ever since. And and what Bloom did was to was to accuse the university of fostering groupthink. He he didn't talk about political correctness per se, um, but that we had groupthink. And what he meant by that was less about the idea, the explicit ideology that students and faculty had, but that they they, they, they had a kind of um, nonchalant pluralism that led people to not take anything very seriously. Because you, you like cannibalism, I like fish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and so Bloom thought that the default position for academics of all kinds was that we can't really argue about the essential questions. If you like cannibalism and I like fish, that's just our value judgments and there's not much more to be said about it. And for Bloom, this was abdicating the role of the, the university, which was to explore the most challenging and difficult questions, uh, the enduring questions. And by giving up on them, what you got instead were people who just wanted internships. I mean, that, the, the word internships would come later, but people who just wanted to get really good jobs and make a lot of money. Because the internal, the eternal questions, the enduring questions, the big value issues, ah, you had your view, I had mine, let's have a beer. And so he bemoaned what the, the, kind of the, wage, the, the, the sins of relativism, really, uh, which he thought uh, was a symptom of the decay of modern Western culture. It was a kind of Nietzschean critique. Um, uh, he's influenced by Alexander Kojev, and, um, but, but it, it's a critique that we've got to a point in history where nobody cares about anything really essential so it's what you care about is, I don't know, the size of your living room, the quality of your television, et cetera. Um, but it was groupthink that really stuck for many people. Because Bloom's critique was also a critique of capitalism and, and, and market society. But what really stuck into the 90s was that groupthink was a problem. It was a problem for young people. And it was a problem for young people because professors were radical and they were indoctrinating young people into a mindset that was anti-Western, anti-patriarchal and anti-Western. So you can see this in the 90s, like somebody like Roger Kimball, who's in his first foray in this world. He, he didn't use the words politically correct very much, but then the second edition of the book, and I don't know, it was like a dozen times or 15 times. And you see this all through the 90s. At Wesleyan, there's a group of students make a film called Politically Correct University, um, which is just very jokey. It's, um, and, um, and, and it becomes a, you know, a meme, we would say today, about college and college professors and students. So 
Um, I chart this uh, development and how it leads eventually to what we today call woke culture. The problem, um, as it's conceptualized by conservatives um, and some moderate liberals, is that you can't ever you can't say what you really think anymore because you would be accused of being politically incorrect. Or today we would say you'd be accused of being a racist. You know, that's the, that's been sub, sub, that's the new substitution for this. That I can't say anything because somebody's going to say I'm a racist. Just because I say something awful about black people or uh, Asian uh, people, they'll, just because I said it, they'll, they'll say I'm a racist. <laughs> and, and, um, and so everybody is against uh, groupthink. Everybody is against uh, this notion you can't say what you really think, it's so it seems. And so you have, uh, I think I charted from, from the first Bush through Obama, every president gives a speech attacking political correctness. It just becomes a, a kind of uh, effigy that you can, or, or a scapegoat that you can use to talk about things you don't like about contemporary culture. And so uh, under the guise of politically, political correctness, uh, people um, worry that nobody can say what they think and that free speech is being eroded. And we hear this a lot today, as you, as you know, about college campuses. I remember in, in like 2015, the Atlantic had a cover story. It was called the, Cod uh, the Coddling of the American Mind, which was later turned into a book by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. Um, that title is clearly referencing the, um, the, the Bloom book. Uh, was, one of many, one of many, you know, I, uh, I, I reviewed that book in the Washington Post and, and a section of it is in Safe Enough Spaces. I know, and I think that Jonathan Haidt and, and Greg Lukianoff, I mean, there are things that they say that are, I think, important. This idea about safetyism is, is you know, interesting. But I, I, I think that they, um, I, I, really, I, I really think that they're just saying, what's the matter with kids today? You know, basically, kids, kids today don't realize that I'm a liberal too. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to middle-aged people complaining that young people don't think they're cool anymore. I mean, I really do think that a lot of it um, comes, especially for people in academia who feel like students today don't care about what I care about. And so they're, they're social justice warriors or they're woke or they're totalitarian or group thing because they don't actually care anymore about what I care about. And when I talk about what I care about, they yell at me. Well, when, when, that, when, when people like that's my, the people my age, you know, when we, when we were young, we said the same thing about the older people. I think older people then weren't so shocked to be treated like old people. Boomers like me, we, we're shocked to be considered old people. Like us, we're cool. Listen, we listen to the same music you guys do. That kind of nonsense, you know. And so I think that some of it is really just whining about the fact that students don't act the same way they did 40 years ago. And you know, my view, and I say this in the book, is if you if you don't like students, you shouldn't be a teacher. I mean, that that you you can't. It's like if you're a card player. You don't complain about the hand you got. You know, if you're not a card player, you do. You just, oh my God, I can't believe how you just play the hand. And so if you can't figure out how to teach these young people, then it's probably time to let someone else become a teacher. Um, 
Now, there, not to say that everything that happens on a campus is great, but, but um, I do think that um, the, this, this de default position that people are intolerant or woke or politically correct is just a, it's usually a sign that you're falling into a trope that, that is one that older people use about young people. Yeah, I definitely, you know, think some of what you're saying is definitely a lot of the feelings that I've had about it, that there's this kind of this, a lot of it is this intergenerational conflict that we act like is new, but it's actually been around for quite some time. Uh, and that's just the the particular dynamics of it and other things, maybe social media make things even more, seem even more prevalent. Like, you know, now a teacher it, like, for example, I'm on Twitter and I follow a lot of academics and a lot of students and, you know, someone has a class where someone, teacher or someone says something that someone disagrees with and then someone posts about it online. Something that was in a private classroom setting or context then becomes public and that can lead to these blowups. Then it can lead to all of these these issues um, around this. You know, some, you know, a question I sort of have around this and th this isn't necessarily something that you particularly talk about but it's definitely a tension point in your book is whether or not universities are you know these conservative traditionalist institutions or whether or not they're the vanguard of leftism uh how, how is it that you know some people seem to see universities and they see them as like these ultra left institutions and some people look at universities and see them as these ultra traditional conservative institutions. Well, I, I think, I think that universities have for a long time been a place for, um, the anti-establishment, uh, actions or activities of young people. I mean, I think just that goes back a long way when you see, the earliest universities, they're always complaining about drunken students doing this and that. And were you know, in the 1800s uh, in Germany, which was the center of scientific research in universities, uh, the dominant view of Americans went to study where it was just that they got people, the students just got drunk and, and, and fought each other in these kind of silly duels, all dressed up as fraternity members. And what one of they're doing there is to they're they're expressing a, an anti-establishment um, view that as they hold on to their independence before they join the market economy or the so political society, you know, it's that it's uh, it's I think that's happened for a long time uh, in colleges and universities. And in colleges and universities, there's often spirited debate about issues that you don't find spirited debate about away from campus because of the, um, the nature of inquiry and because people are trying out ideas without having to make, you know, eternal commitments to them. And so I think there's a, some of this has gone on for a very long time. I, I you know, universities are also a place for sure where, um, old books and now old movies and old paintings are, are considered with care in ways that they're not in popular culture. Um, and that there's a kind of custodial function, especially in the humanities and to some of the social sciences, not in the sciences where they don't give a damn so much about, <laughs> they don't give a damn about history. They, they're just, they're always pushing ahead, 
or trying to you know, go on to the next discovery. And, and so they're anti-conservative in the sciences, although ideologically the scientists may be more conservative but in their politics, they're, they're, they're trying to push ahead. So, uh, I, so I, I think you know, clearly since the, in the United States, since the 1960s um, and, the, and the tremendous growth in the number of students going to universities and they're no longer just for wealthy people and they're no longer um, just for white people, uh, since the 1960s, there's been a, um, a, a turn to the universities as a place for political experimentation, but also, you know, sexual experimentation, identity, uh, and I guess it's happened because there are a lot of young people together who have not yet to forge commitments for which they'll have to take responsibility after graduation. Uh, and, you know, I think the, 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 um, it's certainly true that the ideology of the faculty at most selective schools, especially in on the coasts, is more similar to the left side of the American political spectrum than the rest of the political spectrum. I think that's, you know, then they vote Democratic and uh, and they have more liberal views about most subjects. As do most people who have more education, actually, though, and who even who aren't in the United States, who aren't on campuses, and so people, conservatives worry that, and they have worried since the early 1960s, even before the Vietnam protests, that the universities are being taken over by people who are not wedded to the establishment, and that part of that is just that universities are not just bastions of old power, you know, they, they're now places for different kinds of people. So I think that um, the, the tendency of the university to experimentation, political and otherwise, makes people either very, put a lot of hope in them or get very nervous about them. The, the responsibility of the university to care for parts of culture that are not marketable, that's, I think, a, a different kind of responsibility. So there you can be a radical and be glad that the English department still teaches, I don't know, George Eliot or, or Tom Paine or whomever, right? Uh, you don't only have to teach the latest and bestseller or you don't always just have to have, teach television or something. Uh, uh, but there are other conservative people who say, but the canon um, at the university should always include you know, these 10 books or something. And that, that, those people worry that the university is failing in its custodial function. But the university has both a custodial function, that is to care for things that aren't marketable, whether it's in art or literature or, um, or in unpopular histories. And it has an experimental function which is to just try new stuff and not know where it's going to go. And I, I think those things can happily coexist, but they're different things. You know, they're, 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 I, I, I think you can find an experimental reading of Shakespeare to be sure, but one of the reasons you teach Milton or Shakespeare or, or I don't know, Aristotle is just because it's part of a, a certain tradition that one doesn't want to see lost. 
And I think that is an important feature of the university, but it has to always be in relationship to the experimental feature of the university. Yeah, I definitely, you know, in my time at Wesley, and I, I definitely found that, you know, depending on what class you were in, they tended to, there were some classes, uh, like my tutorial, my Don Quixote tutorial, I was describing, obviously Don Quixote, you know, in, in considered to be in the great books canon, but the actual makeup of the class was very experimental. We were reading more contemporary writers. And then I, I also, you know, studied CSS. So I, I got my, you know, healthy, <laughs> healthy share of Rousseau, Locke and, and Hobbes. Um, I, I was wondering, you know, in your opinion, obviously keeping with, with these kind of, you know, the experimental function and the custodial function, um, and then also conservatives on campus versus liberals, how, how do you see the path forward in fostering the ability for these different types of thinkers to connect with each other? Well, in, in, um, in the third section of uh, Safe Enough Spaces, I, it's about free speech and intellectual diversity. And, and I, I think that, um, um, that it, it's absolutely important for universities to um, cultivate uh, a student body and a professoriate that brings a variety of perspectives on to whatever the topic at hand is. Uh, and I don't think that the free market approach to free speech, which has become you know, pr- pr- very popular even among liberals in the U.S. over the last, uh, I don't know, 40, 50 years, that, that that's an adequate way to promote intellectual diversity. So I think you, free speech is a very important value, it's, and, and, but it, it's um, just like free market is an important thing. It's just not enough. And either to protect people from, let's say, pollution or to cultivate areas that need um, more investment, more cultivation. So um, I, I think the, the um, uh, leaders of colleges and universities should challenge faculty to um, explore the biases they bring to hiring people um, especially political biases and not just racial and ethnic biases. So, I mean, when I brought this up to the Wesleyan faculty, as I still do with limited success, um, and say, you know, you, you're, you're just hiring people in anthropology, let's say, who just look like you, you know, have the same kind of views you have, uh, or in film, for example. Um, and they, and uh, they say, well, no, we're just hiring the best people. And I have to point out to them that that's what the old fart said to us when we said, you're only hiring white guys. You're not hiring women. You're not hiring people of color. And they said, oh, we'd love to, but we hire the best people. But the best people just happen to look like me. And the answer, you know, the kind of Rorty-esque response is, that's because the criteria you use are just the criteria that make you feel comfortable. You know, and and think about that. Don't you... You know, and, and, and then you give them examples. There no, you know, there's, there's no hard, fast rule about these things. But I did hear, I remember from a guidance counselor who said that it would be malpractice if you didn't tell a student applying to Wesleyan, let's say, or Amherst or Yale, wherever these, one of these schools, um, who said, I, I do a lot of civic engagement. I actually protest for the rights of the unborn. The, the advisor said it would be malpractice if I didn't tell them to leave that out. 
Now, if they said I defended abortion rights or you know, right, freedom to choose, they would say, yeah, put it in. And I thought to myself, I, I actually found that surprise. I was, I was embarrassed of how surprised I was to hear that. Because once they said, well, yeah, I, knowing the people over there in admissions, they're all good people, they'd say, no, but we really want moral people. And what they really mean is they want people with my morality. <laughs> and so I've tried OSCM for the last dec decade, and it was a trustee uh, and friend who kind of pointed out these biases to me, and I found them in my own classes. I found that you know, trying to overcome them is an important thing. And, and as a president, I can actually I can give money to someone to hire people <laughs> to, make it, to make that ha help make that happen. And um, I think it makes the school stronger to not have everybody uh, singing from the same uh, uh, choir book. Why do you think it's so difficult to, why do you think it's so difficult to get, you know, for example, or to try and convince someone to come to Wesleyan or to think that Wesleyan is, is like a good place who isn't uh, necessarily in the mold of the political mold of what you said. Do you think that that's, you know, a matter of just self-selection or is this something that has just occurred over time for some other reasons? Like you said, there's a, just a tendency for professors or, you know, academics on both coasts at elite institutions to have, you know, <laughs> this kind of overarching, you know, liberal view. Is, that, is there a historical reason for this? Is there, you know, some some other larger dynamics at play, you think? Well, I, I think that there's um, the, the, the elite reproduces itself in, 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 in some respects. Um, I, I do think on the, on the hiring side, it's because people hire folks that make them feel comfortable. And, and so we could we have no trouble finding good applicants for jobs in the humanities and interpretive social sciences who have different political views. I mean, there, and I'm not saying we should hire Nazis. And that's what people say. Oh, so you want us to hire Nazis or no? I, you know, that's why it's not a, a principle that we should or quotas, but we that we should take seriously uh, points of view about politics and and uh, that that are different from our own. Uh, and, and, and so, um, but on the student side, I actually do think a lot of people apply who have different views. They may just conceal those views for a while. Um, and, you know, at Wesleyan, pr probably just maybe your freshman year, or maybe it could have been a year or so before, but, you know, a group of students came to see me because I had published this stuff about intellectual diversity and, and also about religion on campus that, that religious students feel by, uh, discriminated against. So a group of students came to see me and said, would you be in a conversation with this evangelical uh, who worked for Obama in, in organizing evangelicals? And, um, and I said, you know, I, that, you don't want me. I'm a secular person. I don't, you know, you know. and they pushed and pushed. And finally, I said, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. And I actually thought there would be 12 people in, in Usdan. It was, you know, and there were like 112 people show up for this little conversation. And what they kept telling me is we don't actually talk about these issues because we, are, we know our professors don't want to. 
So the students are there, the Catholic students who practice or the Jewish students who practice or the, you know, the, and the libertarian students who are at Westland. They just keep, you know, they, they, the people majoring in economics, which is probably the most popular major, or CSS, they're not like flaming radicals. They'll be at Morgan Stanley in three years, and, right? Um, you got and, that right. <laughs> and, <laughs> not me. You know, and so, so what I find un- unfortunate is that they conceal a good chunk of themselves because they know how to be successful in front of a, te- a faculty member. Whereas I would rather see, you know, the conversation in class where people feel like able to to bring up a, a variety of points of view. And I don't, I mean, I understand the pressure of social media and ostrac- being ostracized on social media. I mean, I, I recognize it's there. I don't know if that's, I don't know how, I don't know how important that is for people. I think, um, I think, so I see my job as to telling the faculty, look, this is a problem. And for them, because they're all actually really good professionals, they don't want to do this. I mean, if it's true, if they were convinced it was true, they would change. In other words, they, they are professionals. They're not just biased. Like they say, oh, if I have a bias, I should try to correct for it. And and I think um, opening up a, a conversation to more political points of view, more um, perspectives on social change and, and issues of justice, I think that's that will just make the campus a more interesting and educative place. Listen, in the United States, there are few places other than a college campus where young, where people are going to be living near other people who have such different socioeconomic backgrounds, come from ra- different racial and ethnic groups. Because you, you know, America is so segregated that you, know, it, in a college campus, you're just more likely to, to be physically closer to someone who's really different from you. Um, you know, walking around uh, Brooklyn there in Bushwick. Sometimes it feels like the Wesleyan campus, right? A lot of young people uh, with the same kind of clothes. And then there's there's the old Bushwick, right? The uh, Latino Bushwick and and other layers of, of the community. And at, at, at a college campus, you have those things kind of really compressed. And I think it's a, it's, it's a waste if you don't try to find some way to tease out the different perspectives on a variety of issues. No, yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Like it is a the, if just far as you know diversity is concerned, the 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 if you, if you were to map just like density versus diversity of a place like Wesleyan, it's it's pretty remarkable. Uh, and I do remember in particular, I once had a class on uh, it was on modern economic history, and there was ten people in the class, and nine different nationalities wow. <laughs> represented the class. And of course, it made for just a you know unbelievably fantastically interesting <laughs> interesting class it was wonderful that uh, is great yeah just to uh to you know now that we've uh discussed the book i just wanted to know if you're working on on anything new obviously you're president so of the of wesleyan university so <laughs> you obviously have your your hands filled with many things but are you writing anything I am actually. Um, so I'm going to be writing something about Stanley Cavell actually for the Los Angeles Review of Books because there's a there's a new collection of of posthumous uh, essays or a, a occasional pieces that they brought together. 
So I continue my like to write write about my my teachers, <laughs> um, but I just I just finished a book a short book on the idea of the student, uh, which is uh, trying to understand what it what it meant to be a student of Socrates, uh, what it meant to be a student in the medieval period, what it meant to be a student as universities just getting off the ground, and then the the last hundred years what is a college student. How has that idea of a, a college student evolved? So it's you know it's a it's a <laughs> painting with a spray can I guess I mean it's it's a you know starting off with Socrates, Confucius, and Jesus and they're the people who follow them three in each three for, for each each master and then ending up with the contemporary university. So I just sent the manuscript off to the publisher and uh, we'll see what they think they. They had, you know, they've been waiting for it. It was a, it was due during COVID, and I just finished it. I'm sure I'll have revisions to do this. At least I hope I'll have it back this summer to finish the revisions, and and we'll be out this time next year with any with any luck. Well, thank you for thank you, Michael, for uh, being on New Books Network. It was great talking to you. Great to talk with you, and, and best of luck with everything. Thank you.